My name is Anne Bowalda, and I'm the Executive Director of Jubilee Campaign. Before I introduce our moderator for today's event, I will provide a brief, a brief background on the event. The UN Secretary General, in his annual report on the question of death penalty, uh, made clear that the death penalty, quote, must never be imposed as a sanction for specific forms of nonviolent conduct, such as apostasy, blasphemy, adultery, and consensual same-sex relations, unquote. Despite this, at least 12 nations continue to maintain the death penalty for apostasy and blasphemy. This side event is convened to bring together the cross-sectional advocacy regarding freedom of religion, belief, and expression and activism to repeal the death penalty, acknowledging the chilling effect that anti-apostasy and anti-blasphemy laws have on a plethora of other freedoms for individuals from diverse religious and belief backgrounds. More specifically, we would like to issue a call to action. We must push for language to be embedded in international human rights documentation on the death penalty and extrajudicial killings so that people never again sentenced to death for their faith and peaceful manifestations thereof. This is a prime example of a punishment that is absolutely disproportionate to the alleged crime. It is unacceptable, for example, as recently as January 2022 in Pakistan, over 40 religious prisoners of conscience are on death row for alleged blasphemy or apostasy. That must change. While we warmly welcomed the abolition of the death penalty for apostasy in Sudan in 2020, and we also welcome the United States House of Representatives and Senate passing of legislation calling for an end to apostasy and blasphemy laws, much more needs to be done on a global scale to prevent innocent individuals from being sentenced to death for exercising their freedoms. We are thankful for the March 2021 Human Rights Council statement calling for the repeal of the death penalty for apostasy and blasphemy, which was signed by over 50 states. And we are also thankful for the six countries from different parts of the world sponsoring today's event. Thank you for joining us today. The diversity of these countries and civil society members sponsoring this event today emphasizes that we can do more and we must do more. Our moderator for today's event is Mr. Joss Duma, the special uh, envoy for religion and belief for the Netherlands. I will now turn over so that he can further introduce himself and our other speakers. Uh, the Honorable Mr. Duma, thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Bualda, for introducing the today's session and for introducing me. And let me use this opportunity to ask all to mute uh, and, uh, if necessary, switch off telephones um, from dialing in while you are using them for this meeting, because uh, then we only then we have an, in, an uninterrupted meeting. Thank you very much for that. Um, it's, uh, it's my utmost pleasure to be again with um, a Jubilee campaign for a session on um, the capital punishment on uh, blasphemy and apostasy. But on the other side, it is much to be regretted that we still need such a session. But let's see this as a positive start 
of a campaign, indeed, in the end, a jubilee campaign to have um, the death penalty on blasphemy and apostasy abolished, if not negative legislation on both blasphemy and apostasy. As uh, Mr. Waller said, I am Jos Dauma. I am the special envoy of the Netherlands for religion and um, uh, belief. And um, I uh, try to moderate you, to guide you through, to, through today's session. We have a panel here uh, in Geneva, in the Netherlands mission in Geneva. Uh, we, uh, in a way, it is a hybrid session. Some, some others are in a different room, observing and watching and uh, trying to participate, uh, if possible, at the very end. So I should be short. Uh, please feel free, in the very end, um, uh, when invited to, to uh, intervene and ask questions or make comments. The, the objective is that today is a start for a campaign to have resolutions adopted in the United Nations to have death penalty on blasphemy and apostasy abolished. That is the strong will of um, the uh, organizing NGOs and individuals, and it is also the strong will of the Netherlands government and the Netherlands parliament. Okay, without very much more ado, I'd like to introduce the next group of speakers. To my right is um, Ambassador Chiara Poro, the Australian ambassador to the Holy See, and to my left, is the Special Rapporteur, the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief, Dr. Ahmed Shahid. Um, and by a, as a pre-recorded message, we will have then afterwards as number three, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Summary or Arbitrary Executions, Mr. Morris Tidball Bins. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, uh, Jos, and I'd also like to uh, to give my thanks uh, to the Jubilee campaign for uh, organizing this side event uh, today, uh, and also to Ambassador Yostalma for, for hosting us uh, here uh, and sharing and sharing this meeting. Um, I'm Kiara Poro, Australia's Ambassador to the Holy See, and I'm also Australia, recently appointed Australia's uh, representative to the, to the International Religious Freedom of Belief Alliance. Uh, Today, I wanted to just start, and I'll speak very briefly as well, by uh, acknowledging that today is International Women's Day, uh, with this year's theme on gender equality towards uh, today for a sustainable tomorrow. So, in particular, in relation to today's event, I, I want to acknowledge incarcerated women and women on death row. Many women on death row are long-term survivors of gender-based violence and harsh socio-economic deprivation. We know that prisons are designed for men and lack appropriate services for victim survivors of sexual, mental, and physical abuse. Social stigma surrounding women in the criminal justice system means many women on death row lack family support, receive minimal external contact, and suffer high levels of depression. Australia has a long-standing and unwavering opposition to the death penalty. We have vigorously and consistently opposed this punishment in all circumstances for all people. We're also proud to be a strong advocate for freedom of religion or belief. And this reflects our commitment to the universality, indivisibility, and interdependence of all human rights and fundamental freedoms. We are deeply disturbed by the use of blasphemy and apostasy laws to discriminate against religious belief or practice 
We are also concerned about the use of such laws to target individuals and communities to settle personal grievances. <laughs> Even where the death penalty is not carried out in practice, the existence of a threat as a punishment for blasphemy or apostasy can be used to justify violence and human rights violations in the name of religion. As part of our membership of the International Religious Freedom or Belief Alliance, Australia has focused our efforts on advocacy to repeal the death penalty as a punishment for blasphemy or apostasy. As, uh, as, Anne, uh, as Anne mentioned before, Australia presented a joint statement here in Geneva at the 46th Human Rights Council session last March on behalf of 51 states on the use of the death penalty as a punishment for blasphemy and apostasy. And we were very pleased to have three retentionist states join our statement, Japan, Israel, and the US. Last year, to support international efforts to repeal the death sentence for apostasy and blasphemy, Australia also commissioned a report on religious offences and the death penalty. Elias Justice's Killing in the Name of God report, which will be discussed today, was launched in October 2021 and discussed at the UN General Assembly Third Committee. The report forms an important resource for our advocacy against the death penalty. It provides an authoritative account of state-sanctioned killings motivated by religious offending and religious identity. This event will build on the report, seeking to inspire and equip policymakers to repeal the death penalty for apostasy and blasphemy. So thank you very much for having me here today. Thank you for letting me say a few words, and I'm very much looking forward to the panel discussion, and I hope, you find, I hope everyone finds this event stimulating. Thank you. Thank you, Fiat. Dr. Shade. Thank you, Ambassador Dharma. And thank you, Julie Campbell, for taking the lead uh, on sponsoring this event together with the uh, uh, range of co-sponsors connected by advancing the abolition of death penalty for apostasy and blasphemy. Uh, throughout my mandate as UN Social Rapporteur on Freedom of the Belief, I have repeatedly called for the repeal of death penalty for apostasy and blasphemy, which seriously undermines the exercise and enjoyment of fundamental human rights, especially, of course, the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion or belief. These laws cannot be justified on international human rights standards, precisely because they run directly against what the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and belief stands for. Human beings are the rights holders, not religious, not religions, convictions, belief systems, or truth claims. And this right includes the freedom to change one's religion or belief freely without any coercion from state or society. These laws typically restrict a, person, a person's search for the truth. And, this, and the uh, space to express views which may be seen offensive to certain religious communities. Generally, and they're, restricted, they're restricted because they're seen, seen to be taking offense by some communities, generally invoking principles based on religion or public order or some other, uh, some other objective that are, that are very broadly uh, framed and run contrary to the idea of an individual being able to search for their own truth and be who, who, who they are. And by discouraging the freedom of thought and exercise of one's conscience, not only do we condemn the individual, but it's highly dissatisfying and frustrating, but we must harm society at large, weaken people's faith, and as well undermine the resource of society for resilience against hate and other forms of pressure on society. And today I want to note, especially on Women's Rights Day, the intersectional impacts of these laws. Women are particularly harmed by these laws that restrict our freedom of freedom of belief. It could be because of their own expressions, or could be because families are, are, are broken down, or they need social rights, or a whole range of other disabilities, they are harmed by the, the, these laws. Not just the, the study stuff, 
but the restriction of the rights to change one's religion or to express freely what one, one, one finds compelling are, are important here. As we heard from, from you know, colleagues earlier, countless individuals have been uh, targeted tragically, including teachers, students, writers, journalists, artists, rights defenders, and of course, dissidents. And as reflected in the Monash University's groundbreaking report, Killing in the Name of God, the surge of intolerance is worldwide. But there are specific focus here. That are, there are those countries which actively should implement these laws, whether they have death penalty or not, but especially those countries that do have death penalty, frequently implementing them either through societal pressure by, by, uh, by mobs or by state itself. Either way, they harm the individual's search for truth and society's ability to govern itself in a, in a fair manner to everybody through, through law and order. My report to the Human Rights Council in March uh, three years ago, I looked at this issue and recommended a triage approach because the problems are so, so vast. And my, my focus was trying to focus on those immediate concerns that affect life and limb. And of course, along the way, of course, address the other issues, uh, issues as well. Um, the long and short of this is these laws fall foul of Article 19.3. They cannot be justified under the Human Rights Framework, and they have to be uh, re removed forthwith. And we find in those countries, even where the government is not trying to implement them, that people find these laws empowering, they take the law into their hands, and these countries become ungovernable. So it's the interest of everybody to repeal these laws as quickly as possible and completely. Thank you very much. Thank you. Dr. Morris Tidball Biggs. Yeah. I wish to thank the Jubilee campaign for inviting me today in my capacity as United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Summary or Arbitrary Executions to participate in this important event. I do apologize to the organizers and the audience for not being able to participate in person. And I'm, I'm therefore very grateful for the opportunity to do so through this means instead. Thank you very much. Let me start by applauding this event and joining the call for the inequivocal repeal of the death penalty as a criminal punishment for religion or belief. It is my view that the imposition of the death penalty against the exercise of such fundamental rights as freedom of thought and religion, including the right to renounce to one's religion, amounts to an arbitrary deprivation of life and a blatant violation of international human rights law, which inequivocally, inequivocally prohibits the imposition of the death penalty for such cases. In addition, it is my view as mandate holder, as well as a physician and a forensic specialist, that the imposition of the death penalty and its execution amounts in itself to a form of torture and other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment, suffered both by the individual facing execution and his or her family. I need not remind this distinguished audience that the prohibition of these crimes is both universal and absolute. I am aware of the many challenges we face for the full abolition of the death penalty in law and in practice for offenses against religion. 
but I am also convinced that they are not insurmountable. I therefore welcome Monash University's recent report, Killing in the Name of God, presented here. This thoroughly researched and scholarly report, prepared by Ilios Justice, offers an unprecedented and evidence-based analysis of the use of the death penalty against freedom of religion and belief in today's world. As importantly, it provides a truly invaluable toolbox for lawmakers and activists, especially for those in countries that still maintain the death penalty for religion and belief. For example, in addition to the sound legal arguments for the abolition of the death penalty for religious offenses, the report offers as well the views of highly respected religious scholars on the incompatibility of the death penalty with modern interpretations of religious texts. I therefore wish to commend and once again thank Jubilee Campaign and the organizers of this event for raising awareness about the continuing use of the death penalty in violation of the right of religion and belief and the prohibition of arbitrary killings and for their call for renewed and concerted efforts for the total abolition of the death penalty against expressions of religion and belief. You can count with the continuing support of my mandate for this noble, urgent and shared endeavor. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Morris Tippeldins. And your last sentence, although it is pre-recorded, but I dare to say it, these last sentences are of, are, are of enormous importance because we truly need the, um, the support from the uh, special rapporteurs and the special envoys. Um, so we could, can say that we've now had two keynote addresses on the track that we need to go. Um, that was just the beginning for today. Um, as our next speakers, we have um, we go a bit deeper, so to speak, into the report, and we uh, have Dr. Maisato and Dr. Khalid Masoud. Dr. Maisato is the director of Ilios Justice and is one of the primary co-authors of the report that has been mentioned a few times already, killing in the name of God. And thanks for the praise of uh, Mr. Tidbal-Bitz. A report that addresses the extent of state-sanctioned killings motivated by laws criminalizing religion or belief with the death penalty sanction. Dr. Khalid Masood is presently a judge of the Supreme Court of Pakistan and formerly the chairman of the government of Pakistan's Council of Islamic Ideology as well as a law professor at the International Islamic University in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. We now welcome Dr. Sato and Dr. Masood to share their remarks. Dr. Sato's remarks will be pre-recorded, and my saying that means that um, uh, Dr. Masood's uh, intervention will be live. Thank you very much. The floor is to Dr. Sato. Hello everyone, my name is Mai Sato and I'm the Director of Elios Justice at Monash University. I'm joining this event from Melbourne, Australia, and I want to recognize the various traditional lands on which we meet today. I acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging. 
Before I begin, I'd like to thank Jubilee Campaign for organizing this event and for inviting me. Uh, I was asked to provide a short summary of our recent report, Killing in the Name of God. This is a co-authored report with Christopher Alexander, Dr. Nadia Shah Hussein, and James McLaren. We're also grateful to Mohammed Musa Mahmoudi and Muzaffar Ali for each contributing a short piece on the return of Taliban rule. I'd like to thank the Australian government for funding this report. So over the last five years, many countries have repealed their blasphemy laws that they haven't been used for decades. But the same trend hasn't been observed throughout the world. For example, in 2019, Brunei introduced the death penalty for apostasy and blasphemy. In 2018, Mauritania amended its laws and the death penalty became mandatory for these offenses. Using religious offense as an umbrella term to refer to offenses such as apostasy, blasphemy, proselytizing. In 12 countries, religious offenses may be punishable by death. And 11 of these countries prescribe the death penalty for apostasy, that's renouncing one's religion, while seven prescribe the death penalty for blasphemy. In some states, the death penalty is codified in legislation. In others, it applies by operation of unwritten Sharia law. Since 2010, death sentences have been imposed for offenses against religion in at least six countries. Only Iran during this period carried out ex executions on this basis, or at least the ones that we could um, identify through our research. In the last 10 years, we only identified a single execution of an individual convicted of religious offending. However, I want to stress that by prescribing a death penalty for these offenses, whether it's a theoretical possibility or a real possibility, these 12 countries assert that those who offend religious morals deserve to die. While executions for religious offenses appear to be rare, governments have used alternate criminal provisions to execute religious offenders. In Iran, for example, at least six people have been executed since 2010 on charges relating to state security, despite their so-called crime being the holding of religious classes or of distribution of religious texts. In some cases, state killings are motivated exclusively by the religious identity of the victim. And in these cases, identity itself is construed as an affront to religious morals. This event is focused on a death penalty, so I won't go into much detail, but I just want to point out that there are other forms of state sanctioned killings beyond the death penalty motivated by alleged uh, religious offending or by religious identity. And this includes extrajudicial killings by state actors, as well as killings by non-state actors, such as killings committed by civilians and extremist groups. And we include in cases where states are complicit to some degree. As I said earlier, going back to the death penalty, in all 12 jurisdictions, the death penalty for religious offences either stems from or is justified on the basis of Islamic law. In our report, we argue that Islamic law and human rights are fully reconcilable. The Holy Quran is clear, there shall be no coercion in matters of faith. The Quran is silent on any punishment for Rida. And Rida means uh, turning back from Islam, which is probably the closest to what is known in the West as religious offenses, including um, offenses such as apostasy and blasphemy. 
We also argue that there's a growing consensus that the Quran prescribes no temporal punishment for offenses against religion. And indeed, Islam is the state religion in both Tunisia and Morocco, but these countries does not prescribe the death penalty for Rida. In countries that uh, codify legislation and prescribe the death penalty for Rida, it's often these legislations are often vague, ambitious and broad, and has been directed against political opponents, minority groups, progressive scholars and activists whose lives are under threat because of these laws. We argue that the Quran embraces religious freedom and guaranteeing religious freedom while retaining a death penalty for such behavior is not true religious freedom. The idea that the sacred needs forceful protection and in some cases to the extent of lethal violence is created or at the very least legitimized in these societies by the presence of the death penalty for religious offenses. We argue that the impact of abolishing the death penalty for religious offenses will likely extend far beyond the stemming of executions on this basis. Thank you very much for your attention. And if you like to read our report, it's available online and you can also download it through the QR code provided in this slide. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Sato. Um, Maryam, can you connect to Thank you very much for this opportunity. I am one of the editors for this book. I can show you here. Uh, this is a book on freedom of expression in Islam, challenging apostasy and blasphemy laws. It is uh, published by Oslo Human Rights uh, Coalition. And the authors here are very prominent scholars of Islamic law and they uh, belong to Iran and uh, other countries. The general consensus, as uh, previously Dr. Sato had mentioned, that there is a problem with bla blasphemy law and the, with the apostasy law, that it is, uh, scholars found that uh, it is against the spirit of the Islamic religion and it's not rooted in the spirit of Islamic law because the two sources of the primary sources of the Islamic law are the Quran and the Prophet's uh, saying or Prophet's life. And both of them do not support any punishment, not to speak of death penalty, for these two uh, crimes that have been condemned but uh, criminalized mostly in the late medieval period and in the modern period. The Quran does not uh, talk about the death penalty. It does condemn uh, the uh, uh, apostasy, but not so much of blasphemy. The reason where these are mentioned and which came to the Islamic law are the two conditions. One was the conditions of war conditions during the medieval period. And second was that there was a uh, action or activity of the hatred against religion, against uh, Muslims' hatred against the other religions and other religions showing their hatred. So th these are the contexts in which uh, this law developed. Now this has made the law very complex in, uh, uh, in Pakistan and uh, some Muslim countries. 
because those people who can advocate who can make research or who can talk to the people on the uh, legality or legitimacy of this uh, uh, of this uh, laws are blamed for either blasphemy or for apostasy because even the law does not uh, call the blasphemous as a, uh, muslims are uh, not uh, counted in law or the legit uh, according to the law as uh, uh, blasphemous but pro, pro apostate and the for the non muslims it it is not apostasy it cannot be and it cannot be uh, the uh, the blasphemy in that sense but it is like they are defying the contract under which they are living in a muslim country so the law is very complex and the complexity also comes because in the modern period is it is part the religion is part of identity is part of uh, the cultural uh, strife and the, it has become uh, extremely politicized and because of that the question is not simply changing the law but the problem is with the extra judicial killing by the mobs and the the law takes action only after these things have happened so i think it's a it's a as far as the law is concerned the legal formation uh, formation of uh, blasphemy law and uh, uh, apostasy law uh, are uh, modern and especially in pakistan it's a uh, british uh, blasphemy laws to which extension has been made to include uh, apostasy also and uh, all these uh, three or four uh sub sections have been added to include that that shows the difficulty of the islamic law to include uh, this law or this uh, uh, legislation into the modern period so what i'm emphasizing is that it is against the spirit of islamic law and that's why the, ju the jurist in the medieval period and in the modern period are also divided on its definition because the intention Uh, in the in the legislation the criminal the uh, mens rea or the criminal intent is not mentioned in the in the laws and also the punishment is uh, the judge has no uh, uh, no choice other than this fixed punishment so law is weak and in a, in a way law is very bad but there cannot cannot be any discussion because it's so much politicized that the government also the governments i will say uh, do not want to go into uh, backing the advocacy or uh, supporting this uh, discussions so i think this is a, a very complex uh, phenomenon uh, even though uh, this uh, the some of the judges and the, and the uh, have been also been had been victim of this uh, uh, extrajudicial killings so it is a kind of a uh, problem with where governments are uh, governments are very weak to uh, make changes and uh, the judiciary and the lawyers are afraid to take these cases so there should be a much more wider strategy to uh, to uh, introduce uh, abolition of uh, this uh, uh, a crime Uh, which has been uh, which uh, offense which has been criminalized in the modern period 
more often and which has been uh, which is a badly and uh, very hastily put into legislation so it is creating problems for the for the judges for the courts and also for the uh, governments the extrajudicial uh, mob lynching and all these are happening because the politicized the, the these uh, crimes or these offenses have been politicized, politicized and also they are uh, blaming the islamophobia and other uh, such uh, hatred crimes uh, which are uh, also coming up in uh, muslim countries even so i think that's a strategy uh, must be looking at this complexity uh, although the advocacy for uh, uh, for banning the death penalty for apostasy and blasphemy is going on uh, in in the literature and there are many muslim uh, scholars and activists who are working for that advocating that but i think when we are looking for uh, taking any uh, any pressures on the government which we will we need to look at the uh, more social side also and more complexity uh, about the uh, about the moving towards that direction thank you very much thank you very much dr masood and thank you also dr sato two very important introductions into deeper into the subject um the content and also the necessary strategies and the complexities. Thank you very much for elaborating so widely on that, uh, Dr. Masood. And um, you, yeah, that is in a way a preview to our next phase, how to handle this in the international scene. Yeah. And the fact that we are all sitting here together from so many parts of the world, um, uh, we checked it. Uh, Dr. Tipal Bins uh, is a Chilean working in Australia, so the, meet, the message was uh, recorded in Australia, and, and you're sitting there in Pakistan. Uh, we discussing this global issue. Um, um, yeah, we need to be grateful in a way for uh, for COVID um, energizing us for do, uh, approaching it from uh, through this way. Thank you very much for your wisdom uh, and your contribution, and. Um, then it becomes more painful because we now will zoom in into one specific case. Mr. Okola Alpini is the defense attorney for the 22-year-old Nigerian prisoner of conscience and a gospel singer, Yahya Sharif Aminu, who was sentenced to death for alleged blasphemy by a Sharia court in Kano State in Nigeria. So. Northern Nigeria, Sharia, a singer, and what made the court judge him guilty of blasphemy? The floor is yours. Thank you for having me. Um, I thank Jubilee for organizing this. As you rightly said, I represent Yaya Amin Sharif, who has been who was sentenced to death um, for blasphemy in the year 2020. When uh, Yaya's case came up, it was um, outrageous because we didn't know that uh, these things were still um, so blatant in our, in our, in our country. We're, in the last few years, most um, governors have refused to sign the the um, warrants for the death penalty 
and in the north, no one has been put to death or sentenced to death um, for for blasphemy or any of these Islamic offenses in recent times. So of course there was an uproar. Twenty years after we we got got back to democracy, why are some people still, you know, plunging us back to the Middle Ages? I must say that the existence of Sharia law in Nigeria um, has been since pre-independence. This dates back to the um, days of colonial rule. Perhaps the background into the kind of country Nigeria is may help us. Nigeria is a melting pot of many nations. We speak over 400 languages, over 250 ethnic tribes. So when the British came and fused us together, it was basically for just uh, economic interests. Um, they just lumped everybody together. Lord Lugard did that. As a compromise to these strange bedfellows that have now been forced to cohabit, I think a concession was made to Northern Nigeria to have Sharia law as part of their uh, legal system. Whereas in the south of the country, we had the, uh, the British common law, so to speak. However, as a concession, the Sharia law that exists in Northern Nigeria at the time when the British was ruling Nigeria did not confer um, the death penalty for offenses which they now have. It, it was the British um, legal system wouldn't allow for anyone to be stoned to death or their limbs chopped and everything. So that was a compromise. The, the, the Sharia laws of then only applied to Islamic personal law. So if you're a Muslim and you, you're preparing for your death, you would say, okay, I, I want my inheritance to be split uh, in, in the Islamic way. It guide, uh, this, the Sharia law would also guide Islamic marriages, etc. So what changed and how did we get here? When democracy returned to Nigeria in 1999, the military finally left, a southerner was elected president, um, a former retired general, Olusegun Basanjo. And for the first time in uh, a very long time, perhaps about 20 years, the North was without power. And one of the governors from the Northern states decided to, he threw a tantrum, basically. Um, Notice me, hey, here we are. Um, you, you still have to contend with us. So it, it was a political tool, so to speak, when he decided to introduce the criminal aspects of the Sharia law, which the British didn't implement. And um, it might be interesting for you to know that up till now, the Sharia law has never caught up with any VIP in Nigeria or any politician. The Sharia law in Nigeria basically catches the poor people and the defenseless people. <laughs> so, um, and the judges said so during Yaya, Amir Sharif's case and um, Omar Farouk. They said the Sharia law exists in Nigeria to preserve an order. Uh, otherwise, there will be chaos and uproar in the north. I also give you 
another example quickly of how hypocritical this Sharia law is. The states, there are about 12 or 14 northern states that operate Sharia law. And um, they also have what they call the ISBA, which is an Islamic police, so to speak. And they go about, they've arrested a barber for designing um, some sort of hairstyle that had a Versace logo for someone who was a Muslim. So they arrested both of them, um, made him shave off the hair. Um, they were going to jail him. And uh, there was a political compromise. The governor of the state where the Baba came from spoke to Governor Gandhi of Kano State, and they released him while he had to leave town. It was that bad. You'll also, an instance where um, if I go to Kano State, for instance, and I want to drink alcohol, I may, I may not be a Muslim or a practicing Muslim or I may be a Christian or I may not have any religion at all. Uh, I have to be careful where I go and drink my alcohol because the Islamic police will just come and swoop on everybody, arrest you, destroy the drinks. So you find out in the military barracks, for instance, that are situated in the northern states, you cannot implement the Sharia law there. The military barracks have officers' mess, army officers' mess, where you can go and have alcohol senior military officers, Air Force officers, the Islamic police dare not go to the military barracks and arrest them. This shows the hypocrisy of the law. They can only go after the defenseless people outside the military barracks. Whereas the military barracks is situated, say in Kano State, for instance, it's a federal institution in Kano State, but Kano State cannot operate the Sharia law where federal institutions are concerned. There we go with the conflict in the implementation of the Sharia law. I'll now talk about how we, uh, the strategy which we adopted in Yaya's case when we heard. So we heard a young man, um, popularly known as the Kano Singer, the uh, 22-year-old Kano Singer, the newspaper said, had been arrested for blasphemy and uh, he was going to be killed. The, 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 the Sharia, the upper Sharia court in um, Philin Hockey, uh, Philin Hockey is the house award for hockey field. Hockey field were being um, set up by the British during the colonial days. And the Sharia court around that premises, around that area, sentenced Yaya Amin Sharif to death for singing an offensive song about the Prophet Muhammad. And um, the governor said, usually when you're sentenced to death, you're given 30 days to appeal. Of course, um, no lawyer in the whole of Kano State and Northern Nigeria turned up for fear of reprisal attacks. Um, some of my colleagues, when they handled, our legal team handled uh, a Sharia case in 2015, the mob burnt down the court and the police station. Everybody took to their heels and the court had to sit in secret at the Kano prisons to decide over the case. It can be that serious in northern Nigeria. So when Yayaski's um, took over the airwaves, nobody, no lawyer uh, came forward, at least not openly. And then you also had the Islamic movement coming up and saying, if you're a Muslim, uh, you must not represent him, war beside any Muslim that does so. So the, the clock was ticking. And a group of friends, including me, we had a WhatsApp group um, which we had just formed on, found it, and the thing was on religious freedom. We were chatting and all that. 
and we just, it just dawned on us we had just about a week to go before um, the, the death sentence will be signed, the death warrant will be signed by the governor. And we said, well, what's everybody doing? What are we doing about this? This is the kind of stuff we should be getting involved with. And uh, I was mandated to go to Kano State. Um, and that was it. I went to Kano surreptitiously. I happened to be uh, the, one of the alumni of my, of my law school um, set. The law school in Nigeria is where you train for your one year bar vocational course. And therefore, we have a wide network of um, colleagues all over the country. So we activated our boots on the ground, uh, found friendly allies, and I went in. Thank God for the pandemic. You know, we were all in masks. I dressed like a northerner and um, headed to Kano. Um, quickly filed the appeal to um, show you how serious it was. Because officials refused to go and serve the government because everybody was scared of the price of attacks. So I had to devise more in, ingenious means of getting this into the public sphere. So what we did was I, incidentally, the Attorney General of Kano State was my classmate in law school. Um, we sent a DHL. I went to the DHL office and um, sent this to the to the government that we had lodged an appeal. I also activated our um, contacts in the press, both um, local and international, to let them know that an appeal had been filed and that Yaya must not be executed. Um, it must, it's also instrumental. I'm trying to recollect all this because I, I, um, I didn't prepare the speech, so to speak. You need the judgment of the Sharia court the transcript of the judgment to lodge an appeal. So the time when I got to Kano, the Nigerian Bar Association had tried to get involved and they had refused to give them the transcript of the judgment of the Sharia court. Of course, you couldn't file an appeal. Also, one of our very senior human rights lawyers in Nigeria, Mr. Femi Falano, had also tried to get involved. Um, he, he couldn't get any access. You also needed the signature of the appellant, let's say Yamin Sharif, and nobody could access him in the prison. So what did we do? When I got to the high court, because the, the high court would sit on the appeal from the Sharia court, and then if you decide to go on a further appeal from the high court, it will now go to the second highest court in Nigeria, which is the appeal court. So when I got to the high court and I said, they're preventing us access from getting the transcripts of the judgment. In any case, we need to lodge this appeal. And this is very instrumental. A lot of the people who aided us to be able to lodge this successful appeal are Muslims, which shows that they're not happy with the status quo. So they said, don't worry. We, the high court, which is higher than the Sharia court, will write to them and ask them to send us the transcript of the Sharia court judgment. And that was what saved the day. Otherwise, we would not have been able to lodge an appeal without the transcript of judgment. The transcript of judgment is usually in our language and smattering of uh, Islam, um, smattering of Arabic. So the high court transmitted a letter saying, you send us a transcript. And at that point in time, it became 
a government to government issue, the higher court speaking to a lower court saying, give that judgment to me. And they had no choice. Whilst I was filing the appeal, I discovered uh, that the, the, this particular judge uh, of the Sharia court actually sentenced two people that day. But because Yaya was given a death sentence, Yaya's case took over the media. Who was the second person? The second person is Omar Farouk Bashir. He was a minor who was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment by this same judge in the same court on the same day. Both of them sentenced without legal representation. In any case, I had only the appeal for Yaya Amin Sharif with me when I got to Kano and I had to be careful with file that. Then I, when I got back to Abuja and we had a strategy meeting, I said, hey guys, we left someone behind and that person is a child. He was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment with menial labor. So the decision was, um, what do we do? Do we just face this one and, uh, you know, concentrate on Yaya Aminu Sharif? And, and I said, no, we can't do that. So we prepared another appeal, hopped on the plane again, and then we filed an appeal for Omar Sharif as well. Omar Sharif's, um, Omar Sharif was completely successful. Uh, Omar Bashir, I mean, he was, uh, the sentence was quashed, he was set free. Uh, regarding Yaya Amin Sharif, the death sentence was quashed, but he was not set free. He was returned, the case has to be returned to a Sharia court. We have appealed to this. We're challenging um, the, the Sharia law. And uh, I guess I'll, I'll leave it at that. If there are any further questions, I'll take it from there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Alvini, for, uh, for sharing um, also your emotions with us. Uh, it is very good for us to understand how you feel it and also how your clients, because that's what they are, um, feel it and what they experience. But you, uh, you started by introducing us into the, um, the geography, the history and politics of Nigeria. And um, the same as uh, Dr. Masood, you depicted the context uh, in which these, this legislation exists, and that is very important for our way to seek abolishing these, these legislations in different countries, on a global scale, but in different sovereign countries. Thank you very much for that. We zoom out again, and we have two speakers now in the next block. And the first um, is um, uh, my uh, British colleague, uh, Mrs. Fiona Bruce, member of um, the House of Commons, and also the Prime Minister's Special Envoy for Freedom of Religion or Belief. Mm. She is um, now the chair of the International Religious Freedom of Belief Alliance, and you already noticed that it is partly thanks to the IRFA that Australia took the initiative for starting a working group in the IRFA on death penalty, on blasphemy and apostasy, uh, ordered that uh, research by Elios and us sitting here. Thank you very much uh, for, to the IRFA, um, and uh, thank you very much, uh, Fiona, for joining us. The floor is yours. Well, hello from the UK, and thank you for inviting me to speak today. And thank you to my good friend, Ambassador Duma, for chairing. 
I'm delighted that the UK Permanent Mission is co-sponsoring this event and I'm honoured to be here addressing such an important topic. And as you've heard, I do so in my capacity not only as the British Prime Minister's Special Envoy on Freedom of Religion or Belief, but also as the Chair for 2022 of the International Religious Freedom or Belief Alliance. I'm privileged, privileged to be following in the excellent footsteps of last year's Chair and now our Vice Chair, Ambassador Duma. And I'm very pleased that today's event has been directly inspired by a working group on the death penalty set up under the auspices of the Alliance and chaired by Australia. It's good to see Australia's representative to the Alliance, Ambassador Chira Porrell, among our speakers today. And I also want to pay tribute to Dr Maya Sato and her colleagues for their comprehensive and challenging report, which I hope that you will all read if you have not done so already. As some of you may know, the International Religious Freedom or Belief Alliance is a grouping of 35 countries dedicated to working together to enhance our global advocacy to protect the right of freedom of religion or belief for all. It also serves as a platform to coordinate the efforts of governments, parliamentarians and civil society. And today's event makes a really important contribution to this objective by bringing together those campaigning for the abolition of the death penalty with those working for everyone's right to freedom of religion or belief. And with the benefit of the important first-hand experience of some of our speakers today. Freedom of religion or belief importantly includes the right not only to hold a belief but also to express it, even when this means that in doing so an individual effectively rejects the state of official religion, which may be covered by blasphemy laws. And as Dr. Sato's report highlights, even if these laws are rarely used, all too often, the very existence of blasphemy laws can serve as a pretext for mob violence for those who want to take the law into their own hands to demonstrate their dedication to their faith, even to the extent of carrying out horrific mass lynchings. It is a long-standing policy of the UK government to oppose the death penalty in all circumstances as a matter of principle. We believe that the use of the death penalty undermines human dignity, that there is no conclusive evidence of its deterrent value and that any miscarriage of justice leading to its imposition is irreversible and irreparable. We work with our international partners to increase the number of abolitionist countries and we lobby governments to establish moratoriums or abolish the death penalty and we partner with NGOs to reduce its use. I am so encouraged by today's event but advocacy and coordination amongst the like-minded are not enough. We also need to focus on practical next steps. Dr Sato's report makes some helpful suggestions around the role of the international media about penalties for false accusations, training for the legal profession and strategies for advocacy. And so finally, I do hope that today's event will be an important step forward in our work towards the world 
when no one faces such a grave penalty or indeed any penalty just because of what they believe. Thank you. Thank you very much, Fiona, and thank you very much, UK. And then we go back to Geneva. And during the first panel, you saw someone sneak trying to get in. Uh, here he's sitting. Dan Nadal, you arrived safely. Um, you'd like to share some of your insights with us uh, now. The floor is yours. Thank you so much, Ambassador Jama. Um, it's a pleasure to see you all um, this afternoon in Geneva. Um, and around the world to discuss a really timely and important issue. Um, thanks so much to Jubilee Campaign, as well as to the Netherlands uh, Mission and our other co-sponsors um, for, for taking the time out of their busy schedules. Thanks also to those of you who have shared some of your experiences from the ground. Mr. Alapini, I, I can only imagine the, uh, the challenges um, uh, that you faced in, in trying to effectively represent your clients in that environment, and I really commend you for doing it. Uh, a few words on the United States perspective. Um, the United States government is proud to say for freedom of religion or belief, all people around the world. Thank you. As Secretary of State Blinken has noted, human rights is at the core of American foreign policy. And here in Geneva, we are very proud to be back on the Human Rights Council. We all have a responsibility to ensure that no one is subjected to arrest, discrimination, harassment, or other forms of persecution on account of their religious beliefs or affiliations. The existence and enforcement of blasphemy laws is wholly inconsistent with freedom of expression and freedom of religion or belief principles enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the ICCP. Most blasphemy cases have nothing to do with religion. Rather, they involve blasphemy. Once such charges are made, the accused frequently spend years in custody awaiting trial, where judges find themselves under significant societal pressure to convict. Even when courts acquit individuals, they have often spent years or even decades of their lives unjustly imprisoned. Given all of these injustices we see surrounding the use of blasphemy laws globally, the notion that a government could employ execution, the most irreversible of penalties, in response to mere speech is nothing short of unconscionable. I must call specific attention to Pakistan, where more people await execution for blasphemy than all other countries in the world combined, and dozens more have been sentenced to lifetime imprisonment. The United States has long called for the total elimination of the crime of blasphemy, and we will continue to do so through our engagement with diplomats, as well as civil society and religious communities. While we all have an obligation to speak out against manifestations of discrimination and hatred, the best way to defend human rights of religious believers and all others is to ensure open space for discourse and debate for all. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dan, for the very concise and very committed statement and also zooming in on particular cases in a particular country. Um, um, thank you very much for that. Um, we in a way, zoom out again, and we have a block of four important speakers. Four. We need to, to be careful with our time, uh, but um, these four are very important. Um, the first is Marianne Ibrahim. She is a survivor of blasphemy legislation. Sudanese. She is a well-known Sudanese religious freedom activist 
born to a Muslim father and an Ethiopian Orthodox mother. Ms. Ibrahim was charged with apostasy and sentenced to death in 2014 for her marriage to a Christian man. Next to her is Mr. Nasruddin Abdelbari, a prominent author, a lawyer, and a human rights activist who was nominated as the Justice Minister of Sudan in 2019 during its transition away from dictatorship and who was one of the leading figures in the repeal of the nation's apostasy law. The third speaker in this block is Ms. Nadine Maenza. She is the chairwoman of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. And since starting in 2018, she has participated in many user-sponsored hearings, meetings, delegations, including travels to Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Burma, Bahrain, Indonesia, Iraq, Azerbaijan, Thailand, Taiwan, and Uzbekistan. Terribly active. And, and she is also very active on social media and only also in the last days active on a particular case in Nigeria again with relevance for blasphemy. And then we have Dr. Ibrahim Salaman. Um, I had the pleasure of speaking to him this morning and he was our last speaker and I trust him for also sharing with us as the Chief of the Human Rights Treaties Branch in the United Nations Office of the High Commission of Human Rights to share with us insights in how to follow this up wisely and politically sensible. Uh, so four speakers, the one after the other, starting with um, Mariam Ibrahim. The floor is yours. I thank you, Ambassador and thank you. I'm really grateful for Gibele Campaign's effort on this matter. So um, uh, I was in death row for a crime of apostasy in Sudan in 2014. Actually, I was sent to jail on Christmas Eve 2013, and my verdict was on May 11th. Um, I was given three days to decide whether I would follow, um, I would accept Islam or um, receive my sentence. And then on May 15th, 2014, I received um, death sentence of crime of apostasy and hundreds of lashes for adultery because the judge, the court decided my marriage was invalid and then my children are supposed to be sent to the orphan because they are um, considered illegitimate children. And um, my background is that I was born for a Muslim father and Christian mother. So this is actually when we see crime apostasy is on my case is just a confession, a confession. Like that's how the judge says the evidence that I'm um, apostate. So because I said I'm Christian, where by the law I'm supposed to be a Muslim. So I I wouldn't agree with much of the things that are uh, in the report in regard to uh, apostasy and blasphemy law are not there's no punishment for those crimes on Islam because when I'm present when I during my trial while I present at the court the main reference and this is not just in Sudan this is in many Muslim countries that are um, they have this law many of those countries they have one man yes they are a member at the United Nations they are um, they signed the Declaration of Human Rights Law but the main resource of any decision before any decision making on court, especially in cases like related to religion, 
the main source of uh, consultation is Islamic Fiqh Academy. So this is a group of Muslim scholars that the court will get back to them in cases like that, divorce and, and inheritance or anything involved religion. So, and they wait for their fatwa. So I had like um, Muslim scholars would come and visit me in prison, speak to me and other issues. But um, the main purpose of them being there is to consult me, to, to tell me that what I, my decision of saying I'm Christian is wrong. So there's a lot, um, there's a lot of dehumanizing, dehumanization and humiliating moments happen in situation like that. But um, what I say is that saying it's apostasy and blasphemy law punishment is not really, it is uh, deep rooted in Islamic law and, and it started actually with education system. When about uh, teaching al-aqidah and fiqh, you would be tough about how Muhammad dealt with uh, the apostates and we have the apostasy war, which Harb Rida. It's in Islam. This teach how uh, Abu Bakr, after Muhammad's death, how he dealt with uh, some Arab tribe uh, when they start uh, denouncing Islam. I mean, and changing their mind about Islam and start some self-proclaiming uh, prophets. They've been killed, and it's war again the same. It might not happen the same now, but this is how it happened with the law. How? Just Muslim scholars get their fatwa to the court, but in based to this teaching, based to this um, details on a in a sira or in a fiqh or in al aqidah. This is the Islamic subject. It's even been taught at the school. It's uh, not just a matter of like legal system. It's education system. Is a mindset of people who think that you cannot touch Allah, you cannot touch Muhammad, because if you did, you get killed. So um, for uh, Muslims, uh, also it's dangerous because it's the freedom-loving Muslims that are supporting to be able to have religious freedom and to have um, to free to choose their faith, marriage, or whatever they um, they decided to do in life. Just also face some trouble with the government or with, with the legal system in our countries, including my lawyers that who defended my case, are not even able to stay in Sudan after uh, my release. So um, I appreciate the international community's effort on that, but in order for us really, really to have a solution and to have um, end to these issues, we need to look deep rooted into this. And we cannot like, oh, um, uh, we cannot cure cancer by cutting somebody's legs or somebody's ears. We have to, we need to have a real, to be honest about um, really saying what is the problem it is. Everybody have right to choose their face, to defend their faith, but um, hiding the truth and denying the truth, it doesn't be a helpful situation. And um, I do appreciate and I really respect the bravery of people who um here today to speak on to defend it but it's an issue related it is um motivated religiously motivated challenging it's religiously motivated issues and it's related 
rooted deep on Islamic teaching and an Islamic legal system and in Islamic countries. So that's my words. Thank you very much. Dr. Adalbani. Mr. Adalbani, if not available yet, then I give the floor to um, uh, Ms. Nadine Mayanza. Are you available? Could you intervene then, Ms. Nadine Mayanza? Thank you so much, Ambassador Doma, and good morning. First, I'd like to thank the Jubilee Campaign for organizing this important event and to all of you for your participation. I'm encouraged by this new report and to see these issues receive more attention. It's always important to hear from people around the world who are personally impacted, like Miriam Ibrahim. My name is Nadine Mayenza, and I serve as the chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, or USERF. We are an independent, bipartisan U.S. government body and um, that monitors and assesses religious freedom conditions abroad using international standards and makes recommendations to the president, the secretary of state and Congress. It is my privilege to speak to you today on the sidelines of the vital proceedings of the UN Human Rights Council, particularly considering our focus, the insidious impact of blasphemy and apostasy laws. Throughout its nearly 25 years of existence, USERF has consistently and unflinchingly denounced the repressive impact of blasphemy and apostasy laws. Such restrictions impact the ability of individuals to express their religious beliefs or lack thereof and to punish people for the most fundamental right of choosing their beliefs or to change them according to their conscience. In December 2020, we released a comprehensive report on the enforcement of blasphemy laws in 84 countries in which they remain on the books. You can find that at usurf.gov. The report found that over 80% of this enforce enforcement takes place in just 10 countries. Pakistan, Iran, Russia, India, Egypt, Indonesia, Yemen, Bangladesh, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait. It also highlighted the insidious and symbiotic role that such laws play in inciting societal and extrajudicial violence, often in the form of mob attacks that face little to no accountability. Unfortunately, these trends show no sign of abating. In fact, the dangerous nexus between technology and the enforcement of blasphemy and apostasy laws has exacerbated them in many places. We've seen the arrest of atheists and non-believers in Nigeria as a result of their social media activity. We've seen a death sentence given to a Muslim woman in Pakistan for allegations of posting religiously offensive material in a private WhatsApp chat. And we have seen the Taliban seize full control of Afghanistan following the U.S. withdrawal of in August of 2021, raising the specter of that group's long-standing commitment to brutally enforcing its rigid interpretation of blasphemy and apostasy laws. There are notable exceptions of authorities that have turned away from these corrosive laws. For example, Yusuf has reported for the last several years on the advances of the autonomous administration in North and East Syria, embracing religious freedom while eschewing blasphemy and apostasy laws, along with other policies that would destroy such freedom. I've advocated both as USERF chair and in my personal capacity for widespread support for the autonomous administration as a re religious freedom model, particularly given its marked contrast to most of the surrounding region. Its model stands in opposition to that of the Turkish-backed Islamist militias operating just outside its territory, which have tortured religious converts and destroyed non-Muslim shrines for their supposed crime of apostasy and blasphemy. In closing, I will reiterate USERF's unwavering commitment to ending blasphemy and apostasy laws wherever they remain in place. We stand against these laws, even as we stand with all of those who join us in seeking a better, 
for your path. And thank you for your commitment again and dedication to joining us in the same and for the opportunity to speak to you today. Thank you very much, Ms. Naimza. Thank you very much. I'll be telegraphic, try to not to repeat anything. Uh, and, and, and just to say that uh, the, 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 the experiences shown by Myrim in particular and Kola uh, and others uh, is really demonstrate the effect of both apostasy and blasphemy laws. Apostasy uh, laws is no less than a frontal violation of the absolute freedom of conscience. Uh, as to blasphemy, uh, it makes me think that uh, uh, he wouldn't have been the most powerful if God needed our defense. And of course, it's not up to me to say it, to be impactful for those who believe in this type of extreme interpretations, but rather for religious leaders. What I want to say is that the topic we are handling is precisely an issue of um, contradictions between some interpretations of, of religious traditions and established human rights norms. And because of that, you need to involve religious actors and factors into these discussions. I think it was Mrs. Fiona who said that advocacy is not enough. Absolutely. Um, what we need is uh, to try to go beyond the generalities of the interfaith dialogues that, that stick to generalities and niceties uh, very often with all my due respect to all actors. Uh, but really the devil uh, of extremism reside in the details of the intersectionality between freedom of religion and some interpretations of religion that manifestly contradict established uh, human rights. What I want to say in three minutes is three things. Number one, the content of the faithful rights framework, which has been spearheaded by a combination of mechanisms, uh, especially the special rapporteur, uh, Dr. Ahmed Shahid, uh, and also relevant treaty bodies, but also a combination of uh, independent experts on both human rights and religion. And, and the novelty here is that the 18 commitments on faithful rights touch precisely, go beyond uh, freedom of religion as such, to their scratching beyond the surface of their contradiction of some religious interpretation with established human rights, as I said. And because of that, I, I call it myself Forb Plus. It's not only about freedom of religion, it's how does it relate. And the problem of tension between human rights is not new and not limited to freedom of religion. It applies to all other human rights. So there's nothing uh, 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 exceptional uh, uh, about this. So uh, among the 18 commitments, uh, uh, I counted no less than eight out of the 18 faithful rights commitment, which is a framework of human rights responsibilities of religious actors that deal uh, with the grassroots of apostasy. Mary used the metaphor of the cancer. Exactly, this is a preventive grassroots approach uh, uh, human rights-based approach to religion and, and uh, interpretation in the religious sphere. So that's, that's an important tool uh, uh, that is absolutely the product of non-state faith and human rights actor and the human rights mechanisms. Number two, what did we learn from piloting the use of the faithful rights framework uh, in the past year and a half? First of all, uh, uh, I dare to say that we were uh, benefiting from, 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 from the COVID context because we did outreach much more beyond the usual suspects and those who can travel. Absolutely, we had events where two and three thousand and Dr. Ahmed Shahid and many others in this room were in many of these events. And it was amazing to see and to learn the following, I would say. Number one, we learned, as Fiona said, that advocacy is not enough, but we also learned how transformative uh, religious actors can become if they are taken seriously and if they really own the narrative and the language and the substance of resolving the contradiction or reconciling religious interpretation on one hand uh, uh, and human rights on the other hand. For example, uh, 
in the 90s, one fatwa by Al-Azhar uh, on, on delegitimizing, religiously speaking, the FGM practices was, was a turning point in fighting for the rights of, 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 of girls to avoid this, this phenomena. And I want to say that on apostasy, and I'm amazed that, that uh, it's not sufficiently known that the recently adopted fraternity statement by uh, Pope Alexander and, 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 and the Imam of Al-Azhar has a very clear explicit, and I'm quoting, the assertion that people can be forced to a certain belief should be rejected. I mean, what more? But it didn't get the same clarity and the same uh, uh, weight that it should be. But it, it tells us that religious actors can be extremely powerful and that change from within the religious sphere in a bottom-up way is absolutely uh, uh, feasible. What do we need then? We need uh, to uh, uh, empower faith actors and to uh, provide them with the narrative that they need and the peer-to-peer -peer learning. And this is why beyond the, um, the Faithful Rights Framework, which is still a soft law legal document, we managed, again in collaboration with the same non-state actors and experts and rapporteurs and human rights uh, treaty body experts, to reach a, a toolkit which transforms the, uh, the prescriptive normative norms into peer-to-peer uh, uh, -peer learning uh, experiences and exercises, including case studies, including the case uh, in Nigeria, which is uh, in commitment uh, 11. Now I'll move to the last point and your specific question, Ambassador Duma, where to go from here in a politically feasible uh, uh, way. I would say three things. I would say, number one, we need a specific statement stroke resolution that is dedicated to these two forms. I mean, if one dares to establish a hierarchy in abolishing death penalty, I think these are come as the, the worst forms of this penalty simply because they are not corresponding to any crime committed, but just to an expression uh, of freedom or expression of view. Um, number two, uh, we need education, uh, an education that is adapted. Uh, we need to invest in empowering faith actors and not limit this to the traditional institutional religious institutions, because faith actors at, at the grassroots level are at times far more influential than the top down, including in the religious sphere. Uh, number three, uh, education and education and education. And again, uh, not only we benefited from the absence of travel, but we benefited from being forced to work online and to realize to which extent, if you are creative enough and you spend a fraction of what travel costs in bringing the information and the tools to the people in their languages can make a huge difference. Thank you very much. Over to you. As usual, thank you very much for giving us guidance. but. I, uh, I'd like to elaborate a, a, a little more. We have uh, just a few minutes left. Very important. We have still 53 participants, and in, in fact more because some of us are sharing, like me. Um, not all of them are government representatives. Quite a number of them are individuals. And then I come back to um, Ibrahim, education, 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 and grassroots, two essential elements in your approach. Uh, and you referred to the faith for, for rights toolbox. So I think for all the individual and NGO participants in today's session, it is, I think, elementary to indeed use that toolbox and study the Faith for Rights initiative, how to approach other people, discuss this subject, this very sensitive subject with other people, and then come to action, get into action, try to convince. That is the grassroots political initiative. A number of us are NGOs with a more international agenda, and they indeed need to approach other NGOs and need to approach governments 
and other interested parties. We need to understand, and that's why it was very important that we had participants from Pakistan and, uh, and Nigeria to really sense the, uh, the national context and also the religious context and also the historical context to study those elements, use those elements in approaching governments. And then uh, I address the uh, state actors, so to speak, in our, um, in our uh, session. Um, the government, but also uh, Nadine, the USERF and, uh, and your, your, uh, your equals in other countries, um, state advisors how to influence governments uh, to move into the direction of abolishing um, death penalty on both blasphemy and apostasy. And we should know, uh, as we learned today, it's two different subjects, two different aspects of the same animal, so to speak, two different sides of the same coin. Uh, but it is different sides, so we sometimes need different approaches for the two different aspects. Um, that takes a sensible approach. And um, uh, the, um, no doubt we will follow up, have, be assured that we will follow up today's session um, uh, and that we will follow up the study by Elio's Justice and that we will follow up the initiatives taken by individual NGOs and by individuals um, because some of us even have been politically mandated, like myself. We have resolutions from the Dutch Parliament that we want this thing done. So we need to take action and that indeed will bring us back to the global level. Today's was a worldwide session and this, will, this needs to be a worldwide initiative. Um, we have two resolutions in the United Nations framework, the uh, resolution on the um, uh, death penalty and a an, uh, resolution on, and I always forget the, extra, yeah, the title, the extrajudicial killing. Um, two separate processes, two separate resolutions that need lots of, let's say, study and scrutiny because we need to find a way to use those two resolutions. If we fail in using those resolutions, we might need a new resolution, since we have to convince the international, the worldwide family, the international community to take a turn and have sovereign countries change their legislation. That means sometimes, quite often, in fact, change mindsets, take change beliefs, concepts, of how to govern your country. Um, a very difficult process. We have an agenda, but we don't have a detailed agenda uh, yet. Um, please help us in reaching that common goal of having these legislations abolished.